Hello, and welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. I'm Adam, an English teacher who went to China in 2014 and taught English in a small city near Shanghai. This podcast tells the story of my troubled first year, so if you're new to the show, I'd encourage you to start at the beginning. That said, alongside the main story, many episodes focus much more on other issues about Chinese history and culture, and you don't really need to be following the story to listen to that part. Okay, on with the show. It was time to get away. I was beginning to feel the pressure. Aside from the standoffs between various foreign teachers and the claustrophobia of living within a school, the kids were getting comfortable with me, and thus more naughty. A simple stroll down the hall would end up in a tug of war match where I was the rope. Other kids would charge at me, taking the wind out of me in a chuckling headbutt to the stomach. In class, the smart kids began to get impatient with the slower ones. And started distracting them, and the slower ones were only too happy to be distracted. I introduced a "be honest" rule to control kids telling each other the answers and then denying it. I generally had a philosophy of positive reinforcement, ignoring naughty kids and praising the good ones. The good kids got their names written on the board with a star next to it. This is quite the honor. More stars were added for being good students, usually in terms of effort rather than just getting the right answers. In extreme circumstances, a star would be rubbed off the board. This is devastating. This all contrasted with the way that Chen did her classes, in which naughty kids were publicly walloped and sometimes told, if my translation was accurate, that their bad behaviour is leading the teachers to not to like them. Then the management screwed up some class arrangements, which resulted in me being unnecessarily pissed off. It was a Wednesday evening, and I was sitting in my apartment digesting meatballs and rice, and a message appeared on my phone from Shin, asking me if I could do a little extra work teaching English in a shopping mall on Friday night. The message left it at that, with no extra information. Sounds interesting, thought I, and so replied, "Sounds interesting." Can you tell me where it is and how much it pays? The reply came through twenty minutes later. Our Chan Mall in North Changshu, two hundred RMB, which is about twenty pounds. This is on the other side of the city, a fair hike on bus or e-bike. How long does it go on for? I asked. Only half an hour was the reply. Does someone come to the school with me? I asked. No, you have to go alone. By now, more than half an hour had passed with me asking questions to get some idea about whether this is a job worth taking. As I sat there asking what I thought were obvious questions by text message, I became slightly bemused that this information hadn't been included in the original message. Surely, that's common sense. But okay, on balance, yeah, why not? I'll do it. Twenty minutes passed again, and then the message came through. Adam. You didn't reply quickly enough, and now Arizona man has agreed to do the class. You sent me a message asking me to do a class, included no information, and don't even wait for an answer. Why would I ask for all the information if I wasn't interested? Next time, don't bother asking me. Cheers. It was my first angry message to the administration. I got no response. Within a few days, word had come down through the channels of email that some oral classes needed filling. That's oral English. No writing or grammar necessary. They were easy enough, paid well, 
and I wasn't so busy, so I agreed. I met Jane so she could fill me in on the details. It was to be one new class, four periods a week, for two weeks. Fair enough. The first few periods went smoothly enough. They were older kids than mine and only had a simple Biff, Chip and Kipper reading book to read again and again and again. We punctured the monotony by throwing round juggling balls and drawing the kids on the wall in the guise of various fruits. Then, on Thursday, the room was changed. The kids weren't there. I phoned Shin, who was clueless, and then Abe, who managed to track them down. Not only had the room changed, but the time for the class had too. Thanks for letting me know, I said, forgetting that sarcasm doesn't easily translate here. The following week I went back to the class as planned, only to find Kelly there. Biff, Chip and Kipper book in hand. Our eyes locked like two cowboys who'd wound up in the same bar, only to find there's just one shot of tequila left. Aren't I teaching this class? I said. To which she said, probably not if I am. So I said, I did it last week, and then she said, they asked me to do it this week. Hmm. They didn't tell me you were doing it this week, I said to her. They didn't tell me you were doing it this week, either, she said to me. And so I said, they don't tell much. And she said, that's true. Some tumbleweed floated down the hall. Okay, good luck, I said. Watch out for Jim, he gets a little wild. I had been dropped. Why? Had Kelly requested the extra classes? Was I a bad teacher? I needed to know. I marched over to the office and failed to get an answer because my mouth instead deemed it necessary to haughtily explain, as you would a child, how they should do their job. All I got in response was, don't shoot me, I'm the messenger, but in Chinglish. Like I said, it was time to get away. I had to get out. The obvious choice was Shanghai. I was only two hours away from one of the biggest, most extraordinary cities in the world. I fired up the internet and used agoda.com to find a hotel. With no idea about the city's layout, I scanned the map and plumped for an area which appeared to be suitably busy. The hotel was called New Beacon International. The room was 298 RMB per night, about £30, and included breakfast. Well, at least there's that, I thought. Cut to Shanghai, and I'm drawing the eye of the hotel receptionist to the Agoda booking invoice, to the words, double room breakfast included, which he looks at quizzically, before nodding and saying, yes, but breakfast not include. We've been going back and forth on this for ten minutes already, until Marie, a Filipino-Australian from the local affiliated kindergarten who joined me on this trip to Shanghai, told me that it's not going to happen. During the week I'd met Mark between the canteen and the classroom, who told me that Marie, who he knew and I did not, wanted to visit Shanghai this weekend. We'd sensibly teamed up to increase our chances of survival. And at the first battle, Marie was pulling out. I can win this, I said. But Marie said it's probably an Agoda problem, and the receptionist agreed. Although... 
I have a feeling he would have agreed it was a problem with the warp speed drive had Marie said that. I was in Shanghai, the world city in China. It's a monument to a colonial past, glossed over with an expensive Chinese paint job. Shanghai was ceded to the British in the 1840s, in the form of a treaty port, after defeat in the First Opium War. Not a proud moment for British dignity, forcing the Chinese to trade and get high on opium at the barrel of a gun. More than three years fighting led to fewer than 70 British deaths, although a few hundred more were executed as prisoners of war. But more than 3,000 Chinese deaths. For every soldier fighting for the British, of whom many were Indian, there were more than 10 Chinese soldiers. But the Qing Empire were entirely outmatched by the advances of the British military at this time. After the victory to pour highly taxed Indian salt into the wound, the British seized the land, these treaty ports, including Shanghai. Then the Americans and the French came with their own unequal treaties and took a slice of the pie, carving up the cities between the three foreign powers. If the Communist Long March was the tactical withdrawal and regrouping that was required to beat the Nationalists in the Civil War, then China's Long March, from humiliation to grandeur in a century and a half, is embodied in the city of Shanghai. The hotel room was smoky, but nice. The TV had stations from CCTV, the Chinese state's television service, which could not have hoped for a more suggestive acronym. Channel hopping, I saw that the best that CCTV had to offer was a dog-based reality TV show from Australia called Bark Off. Some dogs were put through various challenges and a tension-inducing, drawn-out vote took place around a campfire to see which dog would go through to the next round. The dog sat panting with indifference while their extremely emotional owners made heartfelt speeches and teared up in the face of such monumental pressure. This is the biggest day of my life, said one blonde woman with a flannel shirt. Are you absorbed? Yes, I was too. When I met Maria at the agreed time in the foyer, I asked her about Bark Off. She had never heard of it, but suggested that we barked off to the nearest restaurant before she died of hunger. After dinner, we strolled around the neighbourhood. We were lucky enough to be right next to Painter's Street. No points for guessing what happens here. The majority of the paintings were replicas, perhaps all of them, but it was nice to see the artists working. They ranged from beautiful Chinese landscapes to monochrome David Beckhams. As night fell, we went into the city. Shanghai was less busy than usual, a waitress in a bar told us, but she didn't know why. There were many more Westerners roaming around than I'd seen in all the time I'd been in China. They were everywhere, in little groups, in couples, speaking all languages and Chinese, oozing expat confidence. This was the old French concession, we were told in the next bar. Needless to say, while it still goes by the name in popular parlance, it is no longer an actual French concession. But history defines it, and it has grown into a splendid area to meander through, full of eclectic architecture and charming characters. We found a man sitting cross-legged at the roadside playing an arhu, and a baggy-clothed gent in a park singing Chinese opera to himself. Then, dozens of women dancing elegantly in unison on a patch of concrete by an intersection. This, the famous trend known in China as square dancing, in reference to the town squares where they practice, is for health, mingling, and the occasional affair. Square dancing has its roots in the public events of the Cultural Revolution. I like it, 
the sight of so many people enjoying the evening air and some music. But not everyone does. Sometimes the music is really loud and pumping, keeping nearby residents awake, or just generally irritated. Other times, the grannies take over basketball courts or other places, and there's a standoff with the local kids. Some enterprising locals fight back from time to time, sabotaging the music equipment. The trendy westerners zipped past on retro pushbikes or fake Vespa e-bikes, and young Chinese businessmen commuted by Segway or, on a rare occasion, longboard. Many clothing shops, cafes and restaurants have foregone Chinese altogether and plumped solely for English on their signage. We took slim leafy streets to wide and open junctions, from which more leafy streets led to more wide and open junctions. Much of the leafiness is owed to the French colonialists of the early 20th century, who introduced a European deciduous tree called the London Plain into Avenue Joffre, now Huaihai Road. The trees create tunnels around the roads, providing shade in the heat and leafy showers in the autumn to keep the street cleaners busy. When developers tore down some London plains in the 1990s, the subsequent outcry led to them getting replanted, followed by a refreshing splurge of culture-saving regulation. People power strikes again in China. Some of the vast western houses of the French concession are approaching dereliction, but others remain well-kept. They sit behind big gates and walls, plump and pale houses, split now into different flats or owned by a wealthy family, with the rare promise of a garden. Their cut-off lavishness, their blunt refusal to be Chinese, expresses a wily colonial arrogance. Built by Chinese labourers and cleaned by Chinese cleaners, they provided Cotswold's comfort for Western bureaucrats, businessmen and diplomats, who obviously couldn't be expected to live in the greasy streets that the Chinese so seem to enjoy. Every other house, it seems, sports a plaque celebrating its architecture and former occupants. Immovable cultural relic, read the plaques outside British country homes and Spanish villas, where politicians, artists and businessmen once lived, including Chinese residents after the days of imperialism. One of the most famous erstwhile residents of the area is the writer J.G. Ballard, whose memories of Shanghai, war-torn Shanghai, are exotic and adventurous and chronicled in the book Empire of the Sun. The privileged son of a British chemist, Ballard was living at 31A Amherst Avenue when the Japanese invaded, but was sent by the invaders, with considerably nicer treatment than the locals received, to Longhua internment camp at the south of the city. At the time of my visit, his home had become an exclusive club, with Bentleys and Porsches in the driveway, and a guard who rolled his eyes at our inquiries about the British writer who once lived here. No plaque indicates the former occupant. The big wooden gate has no words, but somehow manages to state, loud and clear, we don't care, now fuck off. Wherever there are homes, there are gates, but the lanes are wide open. These are the idiosyncratic Shanghai peculiarities known as Long Tongue Lanes. They were built to house the increasingly large and diverse number of newcomers to Shanghai in the 19th century, and comprise of narrow labyrinths hidden from the road through subtle entrances, in which communities live like sardines, sharing outside sinks. During the heady communist years of the 60s, according to the 1963 Shanghai Communist Party Committee, these lanes were nothing less than, quote, the frontier posts for class struggle, the home front of production, 
places of living, and the important battle positions for the struggle to foster the proletariat and destroy the bourgeoisie. Nowadays, Shanghai is no less packed, but the sardine tins take the form of high-rise apartment blocks, with private kitchens and toilets and underground parking. Longtang lanes still weave between the main roads, doing much the same job as they always have done, with much of the same lifestyle, albeit more gossiping old ladies than revolutionaries. Twas ever thus, one might say. It's said that these lanes contain the soul of Shanghai, that the city can't be understood without them. This is perhaps why some have been reimagined into the tourist boutique maze of Tianzifeng and the model Shikumen village of Xintiandi. Xintiandi has, amongst the Starbucks, Paolaner brewery and wine bars, in a part of the city that irony forgot, the house of the first national congress of the CCP. It's tucked around the corner from rows of shops displaying luxury cars, Rolls-Royce and McLaren among them. Shanghai is still the number one destination for Westerners in China. It's not hard to see why, with all the trade and finance and relatively open approach to different cultures. Coming from the UK, which was in the grip of its mid-2010s national obsession with immigrants, I wondered how the Shanghainese felt about all these foreigners moving into their town. Expats in Shanghai keep to their own, to use the jargon of a Daily Mail reader. They drink beer, not green tea, they mingle with the local women, tut tut. They sip coffee in Western coffee chains and live with other foreigners, paying over the odds for the privilege, which helps raise prices. They hire maids, just like their forefathers, to clean up after them. They are called Ais, which means auntie. And for some expats in Shanghai, pretty much the only Chinese word they know. Despite the privilege and the non-integrated way of living, the Lao Wai, the expats in Shanghai, get little resentment and even less hostility. That's not really because the Shanghainese are above all that. Instead, resentment is generally favoured for the Wai Diren, those Chinese from other cities who come here to find a better life or to make a quick buck. A piece of Chinese propaganda of the Xi Jinping era reads, China dream, my dream. There's a certain cheek here hijacking the concept of the American dream after years of getting rich by copying or outright stealing American technologies. But the baton is being passed, there's no denying it. Why Ren want a piece of the action too? And the Shanghainese don't see why. On a street full of cafes and boutique clothing stores, we passed a bald aging man in baggy clothing. He was perched on a concrete step outside a bank, smoking three cigarettes simultaneously. He took short, sharp puffs, like the chugging of an early automobile. Whatever Smokey McSmokalot, as Maria called him, was dreaming about, it wasn't the China dream. In what looked like a routine piece of street theatre, police were coming to move him on. It was evening and we took a seat under a large outdoor projection of women's basketball and had a couple of Qingdao's. The adjacent club was a nauseating mix of snow cave and neon bathroom. The next bar was what you might call cool, a place for local poets. It was also like a cave, but one made of stone and wood, not polystyrene and paper mache. Young Chinese couples drank shots and watched as a young man played guitar and sang Chinese love songs. He strummed with the soul of a thousand broken-hearted men. 
and sang with the remorse of a thousand more. It was terrible. I've since gotten used to the dire love songs that the youngsters play in the bars, but I never failed to ask the person next to me, why on earth can't play something with a little, you know, edge? So Maria suggested that I go up and play, and I was like, okay, fair point. The last bar had a different kind of edge. It was underneath the hotel, a dingy jazz bar. We stopped by for a nightcap, a single glass of whiskey each. The bar was circular, central to the room. A luminous fish tank sat beside it, with yellow fish inside. A middle-aged Chinese woman with black skin-tight leather trousers approached us with a look of unbridled glee. She showed us to a semicircular red leather sofa with a table at its centre. The table had a lone red candle burning. We ordered the whiskey and watched karaoke on the stage. Drunk men sang old Chinese love songs, sometimes in pairs. Friends on a nearby table sang along and toasted them during the high notes. On a table near ours, a man sat with his arms around two women half his age. They wore tight clothes and high heels and fetched him drinks. The woman who had shown us in came to sit with us. She spoke little English, just enough for the same conversation I had with all Chinese strangers. Where are you from? What do you do here? Do you like Chinese food? This conversation only differed in that we were invited to sing a song to the drunken crowd. We were, sadly unqualified. We needed to be far, far more pissed. Next time in Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, we try to find the famous Shanghai Bund Go back to Shanghai's notorious heyday in the 1920s, learn about the father of the nation who wasn't Mao Zedong, and look for pigs in Shanghai's Huangpu River. <laughs>